Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen and ascended, Lord, you reign at the right hand of the Father, and so we pray that this afternoon as we hear your word to us, you would reign in our hearts also. Grant to us the enlightenment of hearing your word and seeing ourselves in the light of it. And we ask it for your great glory. Amen. Now, one of my favourite TV shows uh, at the moment is a BBC period uh, cop drama, if you can uh, call a BBC program a cop drama. Uh, It's called Foil's War. I suspect not many of you will know it because uh, I hope many of you will be at church and since young people can't get up before midday, uh, you go to church at night, I would imagine, most of you, and it's on Sunday nights. I, however, go to a church which has no evening service at the moment, though we're looking to plant one in the near future, and so I got to watch my favourite program. It's set in World War II. It's based around the character Foyle, who is a senior police officer during the Second World War. Uh, his son is in the RAF, uh, and so on. It's my favourite uh, program because it's very well produced and it's quite clever, and the British are good at cop dramas as opposed to the Americans who are useless at it. Uh, but really, I like it because of the character Foyle. Foyle himself. Middle-aged man, he's incredibly careful, he's measured, he's understated, he thinks more than he speaks and he does more than he promises. In short, he's frankly everything I'm not. And so the program really works for me. I like watching Mr Foyle go about solving crimes and catching the bad guys. I think the disciple Peter was not a man who ever knew much Uh, what it was like to think more than he spoke or to do more than he promised. He was one of those ready, fire, aim guys. Shoot from the lip, smoking gun. Most of us were like that and I hope there are others here in such good company. Find ourselves in trouble and that's exactly what happened to Peter. He sees himself as a gun disciple, as a top-notch, A-grade, HD follower of Jesus. And you may see yourself in a similar kind of way. Sometimes the Apostle Peter got it right. Uh, When many of Jesus' followers deserted him and after Jesus had said, somewhat gorily, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have no part in me, bunches of them just fall off. They leave. They go, yuck! They just can't cope with what Jesus says. Jesus asked the twelve whether they are also going to abandon him and Peter says... Where else have we to go, for you alone have words of eternal life? So sometimes he gets things right, but but oftentimes he gets things horribly, horribly wrong. At the last meal they shared together as a group, Jesus, and this is how John describes it, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God, and that he was going to God, he did the thing that most expressed the reality of all that. You know what that would be right, don't you? knowing you're from God and you're going to God, that the God, God the Father had given all things into your hands, what's the very next thing that you would do? Well, obviously, Jesus took off his jacket and tied a towel around his waist and started to wash the disciples' feet. What else would you do in those circumstances? Breaking every preconception we have about the nature of glory, Jesus shows us true glory, the glory of servanthood. Anyway, he gets to Peter And Peter the powder says, No way, Jose. You are not washing my feet. 
I'm better than to let you do that to me. Jesus rebukes him gently. Jesus is always gentle. When Peter doesn't get it, Jesus rebukes him fiercely. Jesus is always fierce and says to him, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Later that night, when Jesus has virtually given himself up to be arrested, Jesus orchestrating events in order to make sure it gets to this point, who is it that pulls out trusty Excalibur and with impressive incontinence, sorry, incompetence, not incontinence, <laughs> with impressive, impressive incompetence, slices off the ear of the slave of the high priest. Talk about missing the central figure, right? He gets the slave ear. It's like attacking the deputy bottle washer. But it's Jesus. The soldiers, there's three, four, five, six, seven hundred of them, right? They don't even need to say anything to him. Jesus says to his own disciples, you idiot, put that thing away. You're on completely the wrong track. Getting arrested is what I'm here for. But then to top off a really bad 24 hours, having said that he's prepared to die for Jesus and following the gang after his arrest, Peter is asked by a servant girl whether he's one of Jesus' disciples. I don't know whether you've ever been asked that question actually, just straight down, straight, talk straight, look someone straight in the eye who asks you the question, are you a Christian? And you go, well, see what Peter does. His answer is chilling actually. You remember if you were here two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus answered the question of his identity with the words, I am. Thus nailing his identity to the identity of God, the great I am, Yahweh. Now Peter, in precisely inverse fashion, answers the question about his identity with the words, I am not. I am not. Are you one of his disciples? I am not. Not just once, not just twice, three times Peter crucifies the reality of his identity. Jesus speaks truly, I am. Peter's at the other end of the, of the spectrum, I am not. He denies he has anything to do with Jesus and John highlights what's happened with his description of events. Chapter 18, verse 18, Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing around it and warming themselves and Peter was also standing with them and warming himself. Jesus faces the coldness of death and Peter is standing with his enemies warming himself by the charcoal fire. And then the cock crows. And those terrible words that Jesus had spoken to him before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times, are shown to be true. Now I want you to try and get into Peter's head. How, how does he feel? This was his moment of truth for him just as it was for Jesus. It had arrived. The moment of decision. And he had completely blown it. For three years he'd followed Jesus. He'd cast out demons. He had healed people. He had seen the dead raised. It was, a, it was an absolute glory ride. And now all of that lies in shreds. In tatters, a pile of hot air. Peter just shooting the breeze. I have a friend who's made a shipwreck of his life. He was happily married, or so it seemed. Solid Christian, or so it seemed. Thoroughly involved in his church and Christian ministry. 
That is, until he blew it all away, he had sex with someone who wasn't his wife. He lied about it for months. He pretended until the pretending was pathetic. And then he walked out of his life. His relationships, all of them. He walked out of his commitments. He walked out of the substance of who he was. He blew it. And you may know something of what it is to do that. You may know something of what it is to have yourself in your hands and to let that fall. To betray all it is that you thought you stood for. All it is that you said you stood for. To, to let go of what you have said in your, in your, with your lips in church and before others. You may know what it is to blow it. And the question is, is there any way back from that? Is there any way back? That's a question, of course, about the grace of God. How big is God's grace? How much wrongdoing can the grace of God cope with? Uh, not just at the start of the Christian life, but in the middle of the Christian life as well, after it's been received, even after the grace of God has been lived in and luxuriated in for years. If you abuse it then, can God cope? It's interesting, Peter doesn't speak again in the Gospel after his denial of Jesus until our chapter, chapter 21. Chapter 20 is about the resurrection triumph of Jesus and therefore the commissioning of the disciples sent by Jesus as Jesus has been sent by the Father. Chapter 21, I think, is therefore life about life in that mission. It's ups and it's downs, it's triumphs and it's tragedies and always always the presence and power of grace. The passage comes in two halves. Uh, the first focuses around the theme and metaphor of fishing and the second focuses around the theme and metaphor of the feeding of sheep. It's interesting, I don't know whether you know this, uh, the phrase by hook or by crook. Have you heard that phrase, by hook or by crook? Um, well, it comes from John 21. By hook, fishing. By crook, shepherding. Wow. Okay, chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus... Has everyone got it? You, you do have a Bible, don't you? Have I said this before? Once or twice I think I may have thought it, but I'm not sure if I mentioned it. Bring a Bible to uni! Sorry. I get a bit excited about that. Remember, Ryan Smart will buy you a Bible if you don't have one. It's, it, the offer's getting better and better. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias... And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach. But the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, or, or kind of boys, it's not, a, it's not a pejorative or diminutive term, it's just kind of lads. Lads, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, you will find some. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. Now frankly, these guys are my kind of fishermen. Uh, they catch nothing. I think fishing's a stupid sport, but there are some who are, you know, eat from it and they're good on it. Much of the fishing, as it turns out, in the Sea of Galilee was done at night in those days, as apparently it's done still today. 
Fishermen used torches to attract the fish to the boat and then netted them as they drew close. And although they are expert fishermen, these disciples have laboured throughout the night. Hour after hour, it gets cold there, hour after hour, and they've caught nothing. Unusually, and I presume depressingly. They've deserted Jesus, and now they can't even catch fish. Yet as this account makes clear, it was the Lord's intention that they catch nothing on this occasion. Now, if you have a careful ear, notice the similarities here between Peter's first calling to follow Jesus, as recorded particularly in Luke's Gospel, and this account. Both occurred on the Sea of Galilee. Both times Peter couldn't catch a thing. Both times Jesus told him to throw his nets into the water, and both times there's a miraculous catch. Sometimes when you've fallen, you see, sometimes when you fail, it's good to go back to where it all began. What Peter is offered here, narratively, is a new, fresh start. Sometimes a married couple, if they're having difficulty in their marriage, will return to where they spent their honeymoon to remind them of what they once had and to act as a starting point again. And here Jesus offers Peter another chance. As ever, in the Gospel of John, it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. It'd be interesting to do a study on the disciple whom Jesus loved and see how he goes throughout our story. We don't have time for that today. But it's the disciple whom Jesus loved who is the more spiritually alert and he twigs to the fact of what's going on. Oh yeah, no fish. Mm, remember that once. Uh, other side of the boat. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Lots of fish caught. Mm, I wonder who that is. It's Jesus. It's the Lord's presence that's indicated by this turn of events. He twigs to it and so Peter, ready, fire, aim, Peter, acts. He jumps in the water and wades ashore and when he gets there, Jesus invites him to draw near, to come close, to rejoin fellowship, to share a meal. Pick it up at verse 9. When they'd gone ashore, he saw, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Of course, there's more than sensational and surprising fishing going on here. There's more than just a meal. The fishing functions as an image for the mission that Jesus has initiated. Interestingly, the word that's used uh, for haul in verse 6 and then again in verse 11. You see, see it there? Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. That word is precisely the same word that Jesus uses of his own mission. He says in chapter 6 and verse 44 that no one can come to me unless they are drawn, or literally, unless they are hauled by the Father. Again, in chapter 12, verse 32, 12, verse 32, he speaks of his own death as being lifted up, and by being lifted up, he will then haul or draw all people to himself. God is in the hauling business. Jesus is in the hauling business. And now the disciples are taking up that hauling Jesus has sent them out as the Father has sent him out and here's an important lesson in that mission. Now John reports, interestingly, that there are exactly 153 
fish caught in the net. Not 152, you got it, 153. Uh, almost all the commentators on this from ancient days right up until now agree that John has a reason for giving the number. Some of the guesses as to what that number means can be kind of slightly crazy. One ancient scholar suggested that the number 100 stood for the Gentiles, the largest number, 50 stood for the Jews because they're only half as many or perhaps half as important and three stands for the Trinity, of course. Another obviously mathematically minded commentator, perhaps a, you know, a PhD in maths but frustrated as a Bible teacher, added the numbers 1 through 17. You can do the math, do the math as they say, 1 through 17, 1 plus 2 is 3, plus 3 is 6, plus 4 is 10, that's as far as I get. Guess what? Ah, 153. But uh, he forgot to say the importance of that. <laughs> Perhaps the most likely answer, as uh, some commentators argue, is, is the suggestion that began with a guy called Jeremiah, an early church father, who said that among the Greeks it was widely regarded that there were 153 kinds of fish in the sea. Okay, you can check it out, go go look up, you know, the Greek textbooks on fishing. 153 types of fish in the sea, as far as the Greeks were concerned. Now, we know that there are not 153, but several million, uh, but that's not the point. Maybe this is a way of saying that the Gospel is a universal Gospel. It's for every type of fish in the sea that the mission into which the disciples have been sent, the hauling which they are to do, is to be a hauling that includes everyone. Everyone. That the forgiveness of sins, which is the business that they're in, is for people regardless of their background or their colour or their culture or their education or their wealth or their status or their niceness. It's for everyone. I think though the main emphasis of this account uh, is simply this. Success in this mission cannot occur without recognition that the power of God is needed. If you're going to be in the mission of Jesus, then you need, to, uh, you need the authority and power of Jesus. This is not an independent thing as though Jesus has gone into retirement leaving us in charge. No, he is Lord of the mission precisely in the same way as he's Lord of the Cross. And so we have no freedom to muck around with it, to add to it or to subtract from it. All we have the freedom to do is to fulfil it and the Lord will bless in his own good timing. Jesus says, do it this way, that's the way we do it. Say these truths, those are the things we say. Live in this way, then that's the way we live. Of course, this is ancient truth. Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the guard keeps watch in vain. We're those who've been sent. We are missionaries, sent ones, sent by Jesus as the Father sent him. And so we need to conduct the mission according to the Master's instructions. Well, the episode moves on. It has a profoundly personal dimension. After the meal together, Jesus turns directly to Peter and speaks to him. In the hearing of the other disciples, I presume. Can you imagine the fear in Peter's heart? I don't know if you've ever let anyone down 
It's almost worse when you let someone down and things still work out for them. You're glad that they worked out for them. I mean, Jesus was resurrected. But having let them down and things having still worked out, you sort of wonder what your place is as anymore. Perhaps it's the case that you're strictly redundant. It didn't matter how badly you stuffed up. So it doesn't matter whether you rejoin the team. You can imagine, can't you, the fear in Peter's heart, the uncertainty, uh, his imagination running wildly through all the things that Jesus might say to him. What would you say? A good friend of yours denies that she or he even knows you at your time of most desperate need. When they finished breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know that uh, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, "Feed my sheep." Now, clearly, this account is designed to parallel the scene of Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. Both take place beside a charcoal fire, specifically mentioned. Both of these accounts refer to Peter as Simon Peter. It's the natural Peter, the old Peter, the one with whom we feel a kinship in a way the Peter in us all. Both in the incident in the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus and on this occasion on the beach, a threefold statement is involved. Three times Peter denied Jesus. And now three times he's asked to affirm his love. And three times he does so. Both of these refer to Peter's view of himself. Jesus asks, Simon, Peter, do you love me more than these? Prior to denying Jesus, Peter had inferred that he loved Jesus much more than others. He regards himself as more faithful and more committed. But now Peter knows better than that. His answer is not, yes, I do love you more than these, but simply, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Think a little further beyond just the parallels. Reflect on the particular question that Jesus asks. He asks Peter whether he loves him. He doesn't ask him a whole host of other things. He doesn't ask him what he's done. He doesn't ask him whether he's made up for his terrible betrayal, whether he's wept buckets of tears, whether he's got on with the job. Jesus doesn't ask Peter how much he's prayed. He's not interested to ask Peter how much of the scriptures he's read what have been the quality of his words to other people and whether he's kept the speed limit. He doesn't even get close to asking Peter whether he's gone to church, what he's done with his money or his time or his relationships. All of those things matter, of course. They matter to Jesus. But they all find their place, their properly ordered home in relation to one thing, and one thing only. It really is the thing that matters most. The thing which if you get right, there's a good chance you'll get the rest right. 
But the thing that if you get wrong, then you have no chance with the rest. What Jesus asks is simply this. Do you love me? What Jesus is interested in, even in this fallen former hero, Peter, is not the state of his works, not the state of his doings, but the state of his heart. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher, makes this comment about this question of Jesus. Our Saviour asked this question of Peter that he might ask it of himself, that Peter might ask it of himself. So we may suppose it asked of us today that we may put it to our own hearts. Let each one ask herself or himself here today then for their own prophet, lovest thou the Lord? Lovest thou the Saviour? Lovest thou the ever-blessed Redeemer? Right now, today, in the quietness of your own heart and soul, Jesus is asking you, do you love him? Do you love him? Is that what is on your heart? A deep, strong attachment, a loyalty, an affection, an orientation towards this one, Jesus. Do you yearn to know him, to live for him, to serve him, to do the right thing by him? Is it your heart to at all costs avoid failing him, to avoid disappointing him, to cease from ignoring him. The question that Jesus puts to each of us today is simply, do you love me? You need to have an answer to that question. You need to know the answer to that question in your own heart. Have a clear, simple answer. Not a kind of a fudge, not a yes, but, but, maybe, and, I wish, and... No, 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 yeah, there's... there's There's all sorts of difficulties there, sure. But just at a straightforward level. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? It's that answer which will order everything else in your life, you see. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes this comment on the importance of the heart, you see. He says this, I quote, The sins of the flesh are bad. Sexual sins gluttony, so on. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. Bit of a shock, isn't it? We know that the worst sins are the fleshly ones, the outward ones. Well, no, Lewis disagrees. He says, all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing, of patronising, the pleasures of power, of hatred. Well, there are two things inside me competing with the human self, by which he means the redeemed self as a Christian person, which I must try to uh, become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. I I think Lewis is exactly right. He's right because he knows Jesus and Jesus said it way before he did. 
What Jesus wants from you is your heart. Nothing more than that. Nothing less than that. Your heart, the deep spiritual orientation of your soul. And after that, the rest of it will take care of itself. The story is told of the deep love and devotion uh, French soldiers had for their leader, Napoleon. Uh, He noted that it was not at all unusual for a mortally wounded soldier to raise himself on one elbow and give one final cheer for his reverend general. And if by chance a dying man saw Napoleon nearby, he would, with his final breath, shout, Viva Empereur! Empereur! Whatever that is in French. Perhaps one of the most eloquent expressions of all, however, came from the lips of a soldier who'd been shot in the chest. As the surgeon was attempting to remove the bullet, the suffering man was heard to whisper, If you go much deeper, doctor, you'll come to the emperor. If you dig much more into my heart, you will come to the emperor. That for a weedy little Frenchman. Jesus asks you, you see, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Of course, it doesn't finish there. Love will take form. It will take shape in a person's life. It always does. Uh, Who you love, you serve, and what you serve reveals what or who you love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so now he instructs Peter the fallen and restored disciple to continue in the mission. For each answer to each question, corresponding to and overriding each denial, Peter is instructed, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. It might be stretching a little bit, but I think it's not too far uh, overreading this to suggest that there are three aspects here. Feed my lambs, that is teach the children, the young ones. Don't wait for them to grow up. If you're involved in Sunday school or kids ministry or youth group, that is what Jesus speaks about here. Instruct the young. It's a deeply biblical principle to value the young. The the culture of that day, Romans, they couldn't care less about the young. Children were possessions, not humans. Jesus says, no, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Tend is the other word for uh, tend that you could translate as shepherd. Watch over, guard. Uh, Interestingly, in Peter's first letter, he speaks to the elders to whom he's writing and says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight, watching out for them. Try to discern where they're at. Understand the dangers that they face. Warn and guard them. That's the work of a shepherd. And finally, feed my sheep, my grown-up ones. Again, in his first letter, Peter urges his readers after just having spoken about the word of God to crave pure spiritual milk like newborn infants. I know from long and bitter experience what unfed babies sound like at four o'clock in the morning. It's an appalling abomination. Loud, insistent, craving. And the Apostle Peter, who's been instructed to feed the sheep of God, says, for you... Crave like that. Whinge a lot if you don't get fed. The instrument of feeding is the teaching of the word of God. What Jesus says to Peter that his love for him should take the shape of opening people's minds to the thoughts of God in the scriptures, to unfold for them the whole counsel of God, to give to them a word which is sure 
and certain and clear more than the shifting sands of opinion and culture. Feed my sheep with the word of God. I want to suggest to you that this is an instruction that speaks to all of us in one way or another. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul says that we're all to teach and admonish one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In that sense, every one of us is a teacher. Uh, If you have the time free, can I suggest you stay for afternoon tea here. Why? Because then we exercise a ministry of mutually teaching each other as you talk about trivial things like your week. No, don't talk about it. Talk about what you've read in the scriptures. Teach one another. Encourage each other. Be proactive and deliberate and intentional about making sure the word of God dwells in us richly, soapily, like chocolate in a mud cake. But I want to challenge each one of us here this afternoon specifically to hear this instruction of Jesus to you as his disciple to make this work your life's work. You have your life ahead of you. You have to think about what you're going to do. And I want to put this before you that you consider deep in your heart that the feeding and shepherding and teaching and leading of the people of God would be the investment of your time and your ability and your gifts. There is, in my judgement, an unprecedented opportunity for the ministry of the Word of God today. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Church is Bigger Than You Think. Uh, It has some astonishing graphs and uh, statistics about the spread of the Gospel and the need for teaching in the world today, both overseas and here in Australia. There is a desperate need of the flock in, for example, Africa, and I could go to other continents, but I won't. Hundreds of well-trained Bible teachers are needed to equip the pastors there. I remember hearing a missionary leader saying that he could place 100 seminary teachers tomorrow if he had them. And when he says seminary teachers, he means people educated Christianly to the level that you are. The vast majority of pastors in Africa have a less privileged education than you have, have less Bible knowledge than you have. That's just a fact. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. You don't have to go overseas. In fact, Australia has by far more need for Bible teachers than Africa. A miserable, miserable couple of percent of people in this country love Jesus. It's dreadful. And the future and mission of the church depends on its God-honouring Jesus-loving, spirit-empowered leadership. And so I beg you, will you hear this challenge to make this work of feeding and shepherding your life's work. Let your love for Jesus take this shape. Or at least let me put it more sharply. Don't, for goodness sake, let it be a lack of love for Jesus that stops you from shaping your life in this way. There are all sorts of good reasons why you might not go down this path. But whatever you do, whatever you do, don't let it be because the reality of your soul is such that you just don't love Jesus this much. Oh yes, you love Jesus a little bit. Sure, he gets the kind of weekends. But not your whole life. Don't let it be that the reality of your soul is that you don't love Jesus enough that you love your comfort or your security or your prestige 
or the approval of your parents or your friends or your own self-image. Don't let it be that you love those things in a way that they crowd this out. Don't make excuses like you don't know enough. You do. I can show you plenty of people used by God who know less than you or that you're too shy. You're not. I can show you plenty of people used by God in wonderful ways, far more shy than you. Or that you'll do it later, once you've got your life organised and your house bought and your car paid off and your holiday home done and your kids through school and not on drugs and, and I'll show you plenty of people who are 60 who are still going to do it later. There are plenty of good reasons not to do it. But the last word that Jesus gives to his disciples is feed my sheep. You love me, yes, well feed my sheep. And I want to lay it on your heart and on your conscience today as you begin another year. Perhaps your final year at uni, perhaps your first year at uni. That you would make this task of feeding God's sheep your life's work. For me, I decided in year 12. It wasn't a difficult decision. Someone said to me, I think you should do it. I said... Okay. That was it. It didn't look like anything for the next four years. I did year 12, played my sport, did you know the usual things a year 12 kid does. Uh, came to uni, did economics law. It was all pretty straightforward. But there came a point, there came a point when I said, it's time to act. And so I didn't finish my law degree. I was doing economics law. I was headed off to being you know, a, another one of these Hungarian corrupt businessmen. I pulled out. There's no point doing a law degree if I've got to be in Bible teaching ministry. And my immigrant parents, who'd struggled and sacrificed hard, they pulled every heartstring they could find and eventually threw me out of home. This was a stupid thing to do, as far as they were concerned. But for me it was a straightforward matter. Jesus asked me, do I love him? I said, yes, I do. How could I not? Jesus said, feed my sheep. And I said, okay. And if this is the form you want it to take, I'll keep moving down this track and see where you take me. There are all sorts of good reasons not to. But don't let it be because you don't have the love for Jesus in your heart. There are two other things that uh, John goes on to show us. It's interesting, he says uh, it'll cost. There's a cost involved in feeding and leading God's flock. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger... You used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished, but then when you grow old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which you would glorify God. And after this he said to him, follow me. You see, that's why I think this applies to all of us. This is for followers of Jesus. Anyone who puts their hand up as a follower of Jesus has to hear these words from him. Like I say, what job you do will just fall in its place once you answer the question, do you love me? Eusebius, the historian, tells us that when Peter went to Rome at the close of his life, he was in prison, his hands were bound, he was led out to the place of execution and he was crucified at his own request upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to share the manner of his Lord's death. Yes, it did involve pain, unbearable pain and deep cost for Peter. Preaching and teaching the word of truth in a, in a mixed up and godless world will be a sacrifice. 
but there is no cost too great, no sacrifice not worth paying for our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice one final small gift that we receive in this chapter, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? See, now that's a great question, isn't it? You look at yourself and say, right, I'm up for it. What about her? What about him? If I'm going out on a limb, what about them? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And so the rumour spread in the community that this disciple would not die, that is not die before Jesus returned. Uh, it would seem that the guy's getting close to dying and so they think Jesus is coming back. So they need to correct that rumour. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You see, for some it won't go like it does for Peter. Some won't be martyrs. Some won't be in full-time Christian ministry. Some won't make those kinds of sacrifices. And what John gives to us at the end here is, that's okay. What is that to you? Don't ask the question, what about someone else? You just follow Jesus. We know what matters. You know the question that Jesus asks you. It's simply this. Do you love me? Don't leave the room today without knowing the answer to that question. Do you love Jesus? Well, over these three weeks we've romped through this last section of John's Gospel. It's been quick, but I hope with me you've been strengthened in your faith and encouraged to submit every aspect of your life to Christ's Lordship. How could seeing Christ crucified two weeks ago do anything less than that for us? I hope with me you've heard loud and clear the mission to which he has sent us as the Father sent him, to present the Christian Gospel and lead people to a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we looked at last week. And I hope that with me you've been challenged afresh to love Jesus, to love Jesus from your heart, And to let this love take the shape of feeding and leading and shepherding the flock of God under the chief shepherd to consider the nature and needs of full-time Christian service at home and abroad. In fact, in those kind of phrases, I've just repeated for you the three aims of the EU. Our core business, if you like. What we're on about as a group. After Easter, you'll be asked to formally either rejoin the EU or to join it for the first time, to become a member and to make these aims your aims. In an upfront kind of way, to actually sign on the dotted line, yes, damn it, this is what I'm on about. And I hope you'll do that and live well this year on campus in the light of the cross. It's challenging, isn't it? And with challenge sometimes comes failure, even perhaps severe failure. What we've seen today, I think, is that even uh, in the face of severe failure, if ever there was a person for whom there was no way back, it was Peter. It was Peter. But with grace, there is always a way back. There's always a way back. I don't know what your situation is. It may be that you feel exactly like Peter. That you walked in this this afternoon uh, to this meeting thinking, I am a Christian loser. 
No one knows the contents of my life, but the secrets of my heart suck. Well, you're not even the same league as Peter, as a loser, I suspect. And what you see that here is that Jesus loves. Jesus is full of grace that he deals with people who fail him with such tenderness. This is always Jesus' way and failure is never final. But though that is the end of your failure, it's not the end of grace. In fact, grace never has an end. It always just bounces on. As one who has received grace, so Jesus sends you to be a person of grace. Grace towards others as Jesus has been gracious towards you. Philip Yancey begins his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, with a story he heard from a friend. Let me read it to you, it's just short. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she'd been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn in her own, on her own in a whole night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church? Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. When Jesus walked this earth, women like this ran towards him. They ran towards him. In our day, so often they run away from his followers, those who are called his body. You as an individual and we as a community are those who have experienced grace, the same grace that Peter knew, the grace of a Lord who will never let your sin or your failure be final for you. A Lord who constantly moves towards you with love and tender mercy. Make sure, make sure that you and together all of us have precisely that same grace towards all of God's lost and fallen world. That people know that the EU is a place of grace. For as the Father has sent Jesus, so he sends us. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you send us with full hearts, full of your love and mercy. And so we ask that through us and our efforts, you would build your church, feed your sheep, and have mercy on your world. And it's in your name and for your glory we ask it. Amen. Uh, well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, that actually brings us to the end of uh, Andrew's series on John 18 to 21. I personally have found them.